Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today once again by Tim Stanley, the historian and leader writer at The Telegraph. And we're going to be talking about the crazy week of American politics that we have just experienced. Tim, the big story of the moment, it seems to me, certainly of today, is that Trump needs to be impeached now. This will be the second uh, impeachment of Trump, but this time uh, there seems to there could be enough momentum to push it through. But it's also quite it would be quite a strange impeachment because you've only got eleven days left uh, of the Trump presidency. Is it is there any reason to do it? Do you do you see uh, an urgent need to impeach Trump? I can see two psychological reasons why people might support it at this very late stage. One is this sense that Donald Trump needs to be punished that he shouldn't be allowed to leave the presidency in an orderly manner, but should be booted out to send a message that someone who, from the Democrats and many Republicans' perspective, attempted to actually meddle with the constitutional process, that that person should not be allowed to retain their office. So there's a, there's a desire for some sort of justice to be seen to be done. Uh, the second psychological thing is the possibility that if he is impeached, he will not be able to run again. And that is attractive to Republicans, because right now, most of them are thinking they need to draw a line under the Trump presidency. And they are haunted by the possibility of this man threatening to run again in 2024, uh, which is, is just going to dominate the news cycle and dominate Republican politics at a point where they desperately need to win back the Senate because they lost it now. And they need to make good on the advances they made in the House. So I, on both sides, I can see the psychological case. But we are talking about very few days left of this presidency to run. Uh, are you really going to put uh, Congress through that? Are you going to put America through that for the sake of punishing him or for the sake of internal Republican politics? I, I'm not quite sure that there is the time, there is enough time to justify this action. But I entirely understand why many people are calling for it. I suppose some people think that Trump will be pursued criminally after after he's after he leaves the white house anyway so what's the point in impeachment but i i don't really think there is a criminal case against trump because even though he behaved recklessly as a president uh he didn't call for violence he did actually say you know go away we we're, we need peace uh we're the people of law and order etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think you could say he behaved with extreme irresponsibility and all that but I'm not sure he's done anything sort of criminally wrong. This is the benefit of an impeachment is that it is essentially a political trial. Uh, whereas a criminal proceedings, you're, you're quite right. I, I think the case against him is going to be harder to make. I, there, there probably is a, uh, you, you might be able to persuade someone of the case for incitement. You might be able to do that. But you're absolutely right. There, there has always been with Donald Trump this gray area between uh, what he is accused of doing and what he technically did. And even if he intended to do what he is accused of doing, very often he technically did not do precisely what it is people say. 
And in this instance, he didn't technically say storm Congress and smash up offices and steal the speaker's podium. He didn't say that. And he did tell people to stand down. And he has also said, I now want an orderly transition. So uh, I agree. It's it's hard to believe that there is any kind of loyally common sense to Donald Trump. But very often it's hard to pin him on exact accusations. And I also think given the fact that a large number of Trump voters, a significant proportion of Trump voters, believe that there was serious fraud, possibly enough fraud to have stolen the election, one has to sort of accommodate that, even if it's just paranoia and it's mad, one has to sort of deal with it, or, or America needs to deal with it. And I think impeaching him in a sort of hasty way will feed into this idea that it's a deep state coup against Trump, and it will martyrize him. That might be true. Of course, the counter argument is this is a mob that's attempting to uh, change the course of an election and you cannot allow it to dictate terms. You, you cannot not do something for fear that a tiny minority will not like it. That, that's not the right way to go about things. There is no substantive evidence of fraud. Uh, Trump has made the accusation that it was uh, that the election was open to fraud, but he has not actually provided evidence that there was any. Therefore, I don't think there's I don't believe there is any need to humor this particular group of people. And I suspect that because of what happened on Wednesday, they will now be a tiny minority within a tiny minority. It may become less and less important to politically consider what they want uh, because they are just so marginalized and, and, and insignificant. You are then left with the problem of of simply managing Trump. But having said all of that, uh, this is not, this is so often in journalism, trying to explain why people think and behave the way they do is misunderstood as justifying it or legitimizing it. It's not. But you have to, you have to understand that there are people who believe this election was stolen. And if you believe that an election was stolen, then that legitimizes in your mind almost anything. Now, they are wrong. They need to be told they were wrong. Perhaps they need to be shown they were wrong. But nonetheless, you you have to understand that's why the stakes are so high, because there is a significant group of people out there who genuinely believe wrongly that this election was stolen. Well, I, I, in hindsight, very stupidly wrote a piece with the headline, Deplorables Don't Riot, um, straight after the election. And I've been getting a bit of flack on Twitter and so on. And, uh, you know, I suppose I deserve it. But I stand by my point that I've been to quite a few Trump events. Uh, I've met a hell of a lot of Trump people. They're not, generally speaking, mad, let alone violent. They've generally, the Trump movement is generally a peaceful thing. That's not a, that's not a, uh, an exaggeration. And so this was a sort of, you know, there have been bad moments which have been associated with the Trump movement, like Charlottesville. There's been a few other incidents, few scuffles. But yeah, this was the first time I'd say that they've, that Trump supporters appear to have done something very, very bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we need we will discover in the coming days precisely who this group were. Were they the fringe of the Trump supporters? Are they the people who parasitically attach themselves to Trump rallies or are they ordinary Trump people? They may well be ordinary Trump people, people who have been driven crazy by QAnon theories, by uh, claims the election was stolen, also by COVID. Let, let, let's not rule out the role of locking people up in their houses again. This, none of this is justification. This is just explaining why this might have happened. And I, I do think the parallel is with the Black Lives Matters protests over the summer. 
Now, you're not allowed to make that parallel because, of course, it, it is assumed that, that any kind of left-wing insurrection is inherently morally superior to any right-wing insurrection. In some cases, that's correct. I'm not sure, generally speaking, that is true. But I do think there are some parallels in the sense that you have a combination of different factors of people being locked up, of, uh, of frustration about the political process. And again, if you met many of those protesters, I couldn't because of COVID, but I have met left-wing protesters before, that they usually are, like the Trump people, quite rational people, mm. uh, who, who normally have a, a pretty good grievance. Anyone is capable of anything under certain circumstances. None of this is justifying it. It's just trying to explain. And you, uh, you will not make it go away. You will not resolve it unless you try to explain it, which is why actually, although Joe Biden's speech in some sense, has struck the right tone because he, he understands the Constitution better than, than Trump and his argument that uh, look, what we need to do is actually separate out the branches. We need to have a sense of independence and we need to remove some of the partisan politicization of American constitutional offices. All correct. But I think that I, I think at the same time, Biden was still being partisan. He was still saying this is all on the Trump people. They are wrong. And I will correct that. I mean, for, for instance, uh, he, he endorsed the judges and he thanked the judges and the judiciary uh, for maintaining its independence throughout this crisis. But he also attacked the, the, the mode of their appointment. He said they were Trump appointees. Well, which is it? Are they an independent branch that you totally respect? Or are they the uh, illegitimate appointees of a neo-fascist president? Which is it? This is not whataboutery. I'm, I'm saying that the system is being stress tested by both sides. It is, it is failing at present. And you will only move on from this if there is a desire to understand. Just the same as one must try to understand why people rioted in the summer, one must try and understand why what happened on Wednesday happened. Well, I agree. I don't think it's whataboutery to make comparisons because, I mean, you, you could argue that some Trump supporters might have seen how the Black Lives Matter protest riots were um, encouraged at very high levels, and they might have thought that's how you win. I mean, that's yeah. not that's a that's a point. Um, but also, I mean, it's also interesting in, in the sheer sort of narcissism of the movement. There was this very interesting moment uh, that uh, ITV caught, where a, a Trump supporters in there sort of smashing stuff up, and he turns to the camera and he says, uh, "You made us do this," which is actually a sort of very Black Lives Matter type protest yes. rioter thing to do it's not my fault that i'm smashing stuff up it's you it's you yes. the media the establishment whatever and also the, the another thing that another parallel is that you had trump supporters saying to the rioters um or to the to the people breaking into congress don't do this don't do this this is not us this is not us which is actually what you got a lot of in the black lives matter movement you had a lot yes. of people uh, sort of clearing up, saying this: we don't want it to be like this. We're largely peaceful, which obviously became the big joke, largely peaceful. But all these people do think they're largely peaceful, but then it ends up in chaos and, and carnage. Yeah. yeah, and during the summer, you also had public officials uh, uncertain of what position to take and in some cases endorsing uh, what, for instance, uh, in Portland was really just an occupation, uh, uh, which was extraordinary. So I, I, I agree with all of that. I, I think a couple of really good pieces have been written. One is by a man called Ben Sixsmith, who wrote a very good piece about the camp and kitschness and the tawdriness, the surprising tawdriness uh, of the Trump people. There is, there is just something preposterous about them, the guy with the antlers and all that, this performance. This is about, this is about reality TV. This is about Instagram and being on Twitter. And as some people observed, uh, they were filming themselves as they went into the chamber, the implication being that really power lay not in the chamber itself, but in how it's in 
invasion was perceived online. That's where power has shifted to. Yes. Another really good, really good piece was by Ben, ben Domenic, who uh, I sort of bumped into the campaign trail over the years. Uh, we've seen these. We've, I've been with him when we've met these sorts of people, and they've been around a long time. They were there in 2010. They were Tea Party people. Then they were they were Romney people. Then they were Trump people. They were birthers. I'm surprised this hasn't happened before. I, 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 this, is, this has been growing for a very long time. And they have always used language of insurrection and images of insurrection. They have always said, this is 1776 all over again. Barack Obama is George III, all this sort of rubbish. I mean, so this is a long time coming. I'm surprised it's not come sooner. And I, I, I do think that like what happened over the summer, it, it is a mirror reflection of the culture. I agree with that, with a, a politics which says you are absolutely right you are being oppressed. What is being done to you is utterly unjust. And when you raise the stakes that high, in those people's minds, again, this is not justification, but in those people's minds, why wouldn't you riot? I agree. I agree. But, and, and, but something you point to there is the, is the pantomime element, which I find interesting, that actually once there is a shooting, you know, there was, I realised four people are meant to have died, but the shooting was the, the thing that really seemed to turn the Congress storming around because they everybody quickly sort of backed away after that and it, and it actually died down relatively quickly. And so it wasn't, you know, if this was an angry attempt to storm the Capitol, one person getting shot when they had vastly superior numbers would not have, yes. <laughs> would, would, would have made them more angry. It wouldn't have made them yeah. think, gosh, this has got really serious. I'm reluctant to pass a verdict on who was doing this or why, partly because there's, there's, there's part of me which thinks this is a group of yahoos who got lucky, then got in over their head and then had to back out. But then I'm also conscious that there is a heavily armed fringe element within the American right that if it might not have had a plan, knows what to do and how to behave to maximize publicity and to create trouble. We could discover in the weeks to come there actually was an organized element to this. So I'd, I'd be reluctant to pass verdict. But it, it was it was both it was alarming, it was frightening, it was also preposterous. And yes, people were killed. And I feel those deaths are being underreported. Um, I actually feel that I, I find a, I find it strange that that element of it is is not being picked up on it more. This actually was a deadly clash. Mm. Um, but that part of it, for some reason, is not being touched upon. And I, I don't know if it's because the media just doesn't know how to process or understand what happened. Uh, but I feel under different circumstances, we'd know the names of those people and we'd be talking about that a lot more. We still I don't think I may have missed it, but I don't think we yet know the name of the shooter in the capital. He's apparently an off duty, not off duty, uh, undercover policeman uh, is, is right. the reports I've read. Uh, but it is very odd that that is all a bit mysterious. And, and I think it's a sort of failing of the media that we, you know, our industry manages to expend huge amounts of energy condemning Trump for his speeches. But nobody can sort of establish basic facts about what happened. Mm, mm, mm. And, and that raises the question of where were the media? I mean, there was some excellent reporting. And in particular, there was an ITV report which came right from inside it. Uh, and it's also very difficult in the moment for journalists to make out what's going on or to get right in the heart of things. So I, I entirely sympathize. But I do agree we're, we're going to leave the Trump era and we are leaving it. This is the tawdry twilight of the Trump era. We're going to leave it not understanding his movement which I think is extraordinary, to go through this historical moment and still be largely in ignorance about who these people are, still surprised by the, by the millions who vote for it, 
I do think that is a failure, an, an intellectual institutional failure that we failed to come to terms with who Trump was and, and who he really spoke for. I think the, the Ben Sixsmith piece you reference is fits the spectator one was um, was very good on this, and and it is it's this element of irony within the Trump movement that a lot of them it's it's half serious, it's half very serious, half a complete joke. And that's yeah. something that's very hard to understand, and I'm not sure we do. And the online element yeah. of it is something that people who don't know the online world don't understand at all. Yeah, I, I, in 2016, at the 2016 convention, uh, as I said, I, I bumped into Ben Domenic as we both went to uh, report upon what was being described as some sort of fringe Tea Party convention. And one could have expected far-right militia, one could have expected a Nuremberg rally in scale. It was probably a couple of hundred quite distressed people. They were in no way a threat to the life, the life of the Republic. The characters, I think Pam Geller might have been there. Milo Yiannopoulos was going to be there, but knowing Milo, he probably never showed up. He probably got drunk and got lost. Um, it, it, it was not serious. And I remember looking at Ben and both of us just thinking, is this it? Is this our beer hall putsch? And not ours, as in, as in we wanted, as in this is, this is America's beer hall putsch. It's pathetic. And, and yet somehow... I think, I think that's the thing that I struggle to deal with most of all, is how a, a group of, of basically broken and inept people have, have managed to garner so much attention uh, across the entire world. I want to say it's not a coup, but as I say, it might have been. But it just seems so ridiculous, too ridiculous, too silly to have been a coup. Well, that, I mean, let's look at what do you think happens now, what happens in the next couple of years. The mood this week is obviously Trump is now forever tarnished. He's totally trashed his reputation forever. Uh, the Trump movement will always be tarnished by this. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if, you know, Trump 2024 is off the cards. Do you think it's, it's, he's, he's done now politically? Never rule anything out. I said to someone the moment after the riot happened, don't be surprised if Trump's numbers go up. Uh, that's the thing about Donald Trump. You just don't know. Uh, the thing, I, I, what I would say is he will not go away because that's not what Donald Trump does. He is not going to go into the night. He, he will hang around uh, and he will threaten to run, uh, regardless of what the polling numbers are, regardless of the likelihood. He also could find a proxy. It could be one of his children. Uh, it could be one of his supporters, although the number of supporters has diminished dramatically in the last few days. Certainly his stock is a lot lower than it was. But then again, can it be any lower than it was in early 2015? when almost the entire Republican Party and the media establishment was against him. I, I just, it's, it's not a question of ruling Trump out, because so often in the last few years, the discussion has been, will Trump win? Will Trump win? It's almost, it, it's beyond the sophologists and beyond the journalists. It is whatever Trump chooses to do, and he will generate an audience for what he is doing. So I really wouldn't be surprised if he ran. Assuming he isn't impeached, as you said. Assuming he isn't in prison, impeached or in prison, yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what? I mean, I, those are great hurdles aren't they to your career as long as i'm not impeached as long as i'm not in prison i will be doing fine <laughs> i think i think if if if, you, if if for for democrats who want to beat trump i think biden for all his flaws and i think there are lots of them uh has actually shown the way and it's that you don't you criticize but you don't sort of engage in the way that democrats used to do for the first four years we've always thought of trump as this sort of person who you think he's being a complete idiot he's being completely insane what on earth is he doing and then he somehow gets away with it and everybody goes oh maybe he's a genius uh, but then what biden has shown is that if you actually just don't play trump's 
game of mad jujitsu, then he ends up shooting himself in the foot pretty badly. And that might be a fault of circumstance. It could be that Biden of 10 or 20 years ago would have wanted to respond to everything Trump ever said and to have a verbal fight with him. But Biden of his age and now president is far more controlled than he was before. I mean, you see it again in that speech he gave on Thursday. You're willing him not to go off script. The moment, the moment that Biden gets that red mist in his eyes, and he suddenly thinks, I'm going to tell a story from 1954. And you suddenly think, oh, no, he's going to lose it. But when he actually sticks to the teleprompter, he's fine. And actually something, I think his, his age, everything that Trump thought would be a weakness, uh, the fact that he is so self-composed because he has to be, he's, you know, he's, he's fighting his age, he's fighting a stutter. I think all of that actually creates a really quite compelling contrast with Trump and mm. leaves you thinking, Okay, I could hand the I could hand the keys of the car over to him, and I'll feel quite safe. Yes, that's interesting what you say about Biden because he is sort of a mon- mon- monarchical figure now, in that mm. he doesn't really represent himself at all. He represents yeah. what his what people put in front of the teleprompter. No, absolutely. And and uh, which Joe Biden do you want from what era? Uh, you can have the Joe Biden of the nineteen seventies when he was regarded as being on the right of the Democrat Party and he was a supporter of Jimmy Carter. You can have Joe Biden of the nineteen nineties when he was Mister Anti Crime. You can have Joe Biden when he was the credit card king, when he was a, a voice piece for the credit card companies in Congress. And then in recent years, you can have super liberal granddad uh, Joe Biden, yeah. who's become this cuddly figure of the left. You can you can have whatever Joe Biden you like because he's an old fashioned poll. He will say what he needs to say to get elected, and uh, there's there's a sort of a there's, a there's a sort of democratic integrity to that that you know he will rise to the occasion because yeah. he has a he has a good sense of what's needed right now and what is needed right now is probably what he's delivering. Do you think Daniel McCarthy again on Spectator uh, on the Spectator's US website? I keep publishing our pieces, but let's do it. Uh, he made a, an interesting point a while ago that if the Republicans lose the Senate, it will be bad for a Biden presidency because he, Biden and Obama have for a long time always blamed the Republicans for stopping them from transforming the soul of America. And mm. they have been able to sort of placate their progressive base with this line that they need to do an incremental politics and it's tough on Capitol Hill and they would love to do all the stuff that their base are crying out for, but they just can't. That excuse is now gone. And indeed, Kamala Harris is going to be the person as Senate president, um, as vice president, she's Senate president, hammering in uh, some of the most controversial legislation um, in the next couple of years. Yeah, it it could be a, a difficult time for the Democrats. And Biden is the only supposedly moderate figure standing in the way of, of the radical left. An event of almost equal importance to the right this week was the victory of two Democrats in Georgia. That does change the balance in the Senate. And I think that also has to be blamed on Donald Trump, uh, who either energized Democrats or told Republicans not to bother to vote because their votes would be changed. So why should any conservative come out to vote? It was a really idiotic strategy. But the, a really interesting aspect to that election is that the two Democrats elected from Georgia are liberals. They are not conservative Democrats. The old yellow dog Democratic Party of the South, which won because it was really conservative and sometimes to the right of the local Republicans, is gone. Mm. So I just think it's fascinating that the, 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 the switching of the balance in the Senate has come from two, two uh, senators from the Deep South who are actually relatively liberal. So, so there is less and less of a regional block on whatever the Democrats wish to do, although they will still have troubles. There still are moderates. There still is a great deal of tension between the left and the center of the party. I'm not disputing that. But it's really striking that when you talk of an awkward squad in the Congress 
nowadays, you're increasingly really talking about a handful of Republicans who are moderates. You're not talking about a handful of Democrats who are moderates. The, the Democratic Party is now a, a little more ideologically coherent than it used to be. Uh, and that's one reason why the loss of the Senate was so devastating for the right, because I, I think the Democrats are probably going to have a constructive couple of years. Well, I think um, Ossoff, uh, the 33-year-old, now soon to be senator from Georgia, is an extraordinary figure. Because I mean, Warnock is, a, is an evangelical pastor. He is liberal, but he's more of a sort of classic Southern figure. He'll be the first black yeah. Georgia senator. Yeah. But Ossoff, he's pro-abortion. He's, pro-abortion. He's, a, he's a documentary maker who who yeah. kind of worked with the BBC in London for a while, and he's only 33, and now he's a senator in Georgia, which is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary turnaround. Yeah, so, and it wasn't even in a landslide year. It, it wasn't even in a year in which uh, a sort of was an FDR, LG, uh, LBJ earthquake, uh, which carried people on their coattails into the Senate. The reality is, is that they, they really won on their own terms. And, and for Georgia to provide that, Georgia should be a winnable state. I know it is transforming. I know it is changing, but it is still the South. And it is a mark of what Trump has done to the Republican coalition, uh, that he can be uh, competitive in some places where they never used to be. And he can have such a grip on rural areas. But he has also helped to speed the transformations of places like Georgia and North Carolina into swing states. And and, and what that what the Georgia runoffs also showed was that sort of half Trump, half GOP establishment, rich GOP people are not are not winners in elections. I mean, yeah. Purdue is a, is a more Trumpy figure in some ways. But Kelly Loeffler was a was a sort of awful <laughs> hybrid of elite, rich yeah. Republican politics. So I, th- this is part of the problem is that the Republican Party is a desiccated husk. People have yeah. got to understand that. I mean, I'm not saying Trump, what Trump is bringing in is better. But he triumphed within the Republican Party because it is a desiccated husk, dominated by an aristocracy of elites at the very top who really have no alternative. And that's one of the, the, the tricky questions of how do you turn the Republican Party around? The question is who? British listeners have to understand this is not like a British political party. You don't just get a new leader like Keir Starmer who just clears out the dreck. You don't do that. There is no leader. It's Mitch McConnell. <laughs> that's it. That's the most that's the most prominent Republican figure left after Trump is gone. Mike Pence will have no institutional authority whatsoever. Once he's no longer VP, he's nothing. Mm. So given the structural nature of American politics, anyone can occupy this husk. So it's very difficult to transform the party post-Trump. And that, I mean, interesting what we were saying about Loeffler and Badu being these sort of rich elite figures. But Trump obviously was a very rich person, but he was able to convey a sincerity and I think that was because he was in opposition to the party a lot of the time, whereas because Loughlin and Purdue are not are part of the party, they can't do that. So it sort of has to be someone who's an outsider rather than yes. a fake outsider like Purdue. Yeah. And, and the strange thing is, is that conservatism has is, is painted itself into a corner whereby anyone who gets an office that can make them a legitimate spokesman for the movement is almost automatically a member of the elite. <laughs> so they, they then have to spend the next few years behaving in this preposterous way, trying to prove they're not elite, of which the saddest, the saddest living example is Ted Cruz someone who the anti-elite movement despises. I mean, he doesn't get on well with them, but has done his best to pursue them and to court them with apparently no love whatsoever. And, and supporting Trump, even after Trump has, has called him all sorts of things, and even impugned his own father's reputation. This is preposterous, but it's the, the silly game you have to play because you are this anti-government party now. 
and, and, and that's translating into a failed legislative agenda as well. And looking back on these last four years, you asked what has been achieved. What was achieved was in the field of economic policy or executive actions or foreign policy. What was not achieved, there was barely anything achieved at a congressional level. It was actually the politics of tearing down. It was about tearing up regulations. It was yeah. not about creating new things. And there are whole areas of policy which really have not been touched, of which the most significant is healthcare. And one of the reasons why Trump lost the election, again, would be a little bit over uh, the British viewers' heads because you're just not you're a bit tone deaf to this. But Trump was consistently asked, so what will you do on healthcare? And he had no plan. And that was a real problem. He had a plan in 2016, scrap Obamacare. He, had, he brought nothing to the table in 2020. That's a preposterous position for a party to be in, having no healthcare policy. He gave it to Jared Kushner, along with sort of solving the Middle East and uh, crime reform and countless other things that he just sort of gave to his son-in-law. Yeah, and Jar- Jared was excellent at Middle East peace. He was, that was, he was very good. I think Jared leaves the, the administration with his head held high. He is the one, he is, Michael Wolf said this, he, he is the one member of the Trump administration who, who leaves with some degree of dignity, who, who, who understood how to manage his father-in-law and how to get things done. He, 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 he came to, to command the chain of command very well. Um, but it's all executive action stuff. It's all, it's, it's, it's all personal diplomacy. Uh, it's what it's not is the stuff on which you build a legacy and you build a party in the future. I'd say lastly, I, I'd say you, you mentioned Cruz. I was also when you mentioned him, I thought about Lindsey Graham, who turned on on Trump in the last uh, 24, 48 hours. I, these people to me seem to be far more dangerous in some ways than a figure like Trump, because they're quite capable of pretending to be fully on board with the president, almost sort of cultishly worshipping him at times. And then as soon as they sniff that the wind's going the other way, they change their tune and they become full of cant and condemnation about what an awful person he is. I mean, it's the lack of sincerity among these leaders that is more dangerous than a sort of rogue maniac like Trump. It is utterly shameless. And if you can just put yourself in the mind of Donald Trump right now, you you must be thinking, have I got no one on my side? Uh, my administration is quitting. People who said they were my friend in the Congress are abandoning me. I've got Rudy Giuliani, who day after day has been sort of committing euthanasia by press conference. Um, really, it's, it's pathetic. You've wound it up with nothing. It's, it's a tragic, almost Grecian story. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, and yes, I, there, there is something there is something rather despicable about the, uh, the people who jumped on the bus and then jumped off it straight again. But then again, in their mind, uh, what happened on Wednesday uh, was the ultimate unacceptable thing, which is that the revolution came to them. Their offices were stormed. Their place of work was stormed. You don't do that. And these people do have a very strong sense of how hallowed their own office is. So I, I am, I'm, I'm not surprised that they have switched because this was a step too far. I think so long as the as the, the riots and the revolutions are going on out there in the country somewhere, then you can talk about them in romantic populist terms. But the moment that it's your own house that threatens to be burned down, everyone, whatever your partisanship on both sides of the aisle, suddenly becomes really in favour of law and order. Tim, it's always fascinating talking to you. Please come on again soon. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 